Good evening. <coughs> Good evening, everyone. This is a very intimidating piece of uh, equipment there. <laughs> Tan always comes up with something, but it's quite uh, interesting, actually. <laughs> Um, so uh, tonight I'd like to give a, a brief talk, if that's at all possible, on a couple of aspects of um, uh, Dharma practice. We may need the um, precept sheets. Right? Yeah, we haven't done this today. Uh, I'd say so. Yeah, you may as well hand them out. <laughs> well, where's mine actually? <laughs> I know I had one here. There it is. While Mark's doing that, what I was intending on doing tonight was to uh, talk a little bit um, about um, the path of purification in regards to the first aspect of the seven stages of purification, which equates really uh, with what I was talking about earlier, uh, last night I think, when I mentioned that the Buddha's teachings uh, can be characterized in three ways. And he talked about uh, what, uh, the um, component of sila in Pali, S-I-L-A, sila in Pali, which is the ethical behavior, the non-harming nature of the mind. He talked about the path that we can <coughs> practice to cultivate our concentration. That's the meditative part side of the practice and he talked about <clears throat> um, the uh, wisdom aspect that can arise through the practice of sila and through the practice of samatha which is concentration practice and we attain to the liberating state uh, which is brought about by the insight knowledges flashing through the mind as we go through the practice all sounds very uh, deep and meaningful and I'm sure after a day of practice today, you think that is a long way away. <laughs> for somebody else, but not for me. He's probably coming into the mind. <laughs> the first day of practice can be often like that. So I'll also try to give you... Um, I'd like to talk a little about Satipatthana, Vipassana again and explain a little more in detail what that means and the four foundations of mindfulness and uh, also some of the attitudes we can bring to practice. So we should be here till 11. That's <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so we'll plunge in. And then I'd also like to take some question and answers from people if you have any questions. I like the question and answer. So I'll try to be as brief as possible. Because you've come up with some good questions. And I like to bounce off people with these things. Thanks. But I'd like to firstly start with the path of purification. One of the things that you notice uh, when you're travelling through Burma, and not only Burma but other countries, but especially when you're in the meditation centres in Burma, is the kindness and generosity uh, of the people that are in these meditation centres. 
uh, they have a very wonderful attitude uh, towards you when you go there as a visitor to their country to practice. It's the same in other countries as well, but Burma I particularly noticed it how uh, gentle they were and encouraging they were in your practice when I first went to Burma. And I asked them why, and they said, you know, how has this come about? And they mentioned that it comes about through their, from their childhood, uh, where they're taught about the, the uh, Buddhist teachings on sila. Now, uh, of the um, taking of the precepts, the practicing dana, or generosity of mind. And this is the first teachings that uh, people in Burma are given on their road to uh, spirituality, if you like. Um, it's often with many Burmese people, though, is where it stops. You know, it's surprising to me, but that uh, there's a very large population in Burma, and there's only quite a few people, quite a small number of people, actually go to the meditation centres and practice. Far more than here, by the way, um, or in Australia, uh, but that's because they have many meditation centres which have been popularised uh, since um, the early 1900s. And uh, Vipassana has now become very mainstream in Burma as it has uh, in America and Australia. Now many people are practising it. There are, with the Mahasi practice for example, there are 356 probably more by now, but at one time there are 356 meditation centres throughout Burma. That's amazing, isn't it? When you think about it. Uh, a lot of small villages had uh, meditation centres, not just monasteries, but meditation centres. And they conduct uh, these retreats all over Burma. And the teachers are highly trained even if it's a village monastery. You know, they come to Rangoon, they go to the main meditation centre there, they learn the practice, and then they go home and they teach to their, uh, the uh, people that live in their village. And it's quite extraordinary. And they said to me that, um, because I was very surprised by the attitude they had towards uh, the Dharma, you know, my friends in um, Australia, I have a lot of Burmese friends in Australia, and it's really interesting when you go to their house at night uh, you know, for dinner, something like this, just to, as you think, socialise, you know, as we socialise. <coughs> and you think, oh, we're going to talk about how they're feeling, you know, talk about their aching knees and their you know, bad backs and the, this and that, talk about work or talk about the latest film that's out or theatre production that's happening. But they don't at all. You go in there and instantly they're talking about Dhamma. They're talking about meditation. They're talking about the teachers that they've met recently. It's really quite inspiring. And it turns you away from uh, your own you know, very mundane thoughts into a higher realm. And I really enjoy it when I go there uh, and talk with them. It takes me away from the business and what I'm doing at home, etc., etc., and brings me into another space. And the generosity, as it is here in Hawaii as well, I must say, is very profusive. It's all over the place. It's amazing. I mean, there's a lot of very great suffering in Burma uh, due to the political situation, so I'm not trying to paint Burma out to be this perfect utopia. It's far from that. But the people that follow the teaching fully and go to the meditation centres and purify their minds have this nature. They have this nature. Um, and it's very sincere and very honest. And I really like that a lot. It makes me feel a better person, you know, just by going there, you know, to, to uh, visit them and to visit people in Burma. Now the path of purification 
<coughs> in terms of Buddhist thought. I mentioned last night that it equates to the 16 insight pra- uh, st- stages that can arise in practice, but it's um, reduced down to these seven stages. And the first purification, it's like the path of purification or the seven stages of purification are like a road map. It's something we can follow to begin uh, our, our journey and uh, to reach the goal of the journey. So we've all come here, for example, on this retreat. We've begun our journey in spirituality, our adventure into the observation of the mind, trying to understand you know, what causes suffering in the mind and what are the causes of happiness in the mind, which is really <coughs> what the practice is all, all about eventually, understanding what's useful, what's not useful for us, to bring the mind to a level of happiness which is not the, not the level of happiness that we are usually aware of. No, the Buddha really wasn't teaching about uh, a mundane form of happiness here. And this is really important to know. He acknowledged it, of course, and he taught extensively in how, in how to live as a householder in the world you know, in a harmonious way. Uh, he talked a lot, and this is why he set the foundation stone of sila, or ethical conduct, as a prerogative for practice, as a beginning, a start for practice. Because uh, once you're able to see the mind, and see the torments of the mind, and see how the torments in the mind can bring great unhappiness to yourself and other people, then you can understand how difficult it is to attain to a higher level of practice if these torments are still in the mind. If our behaviour patterns uh, are not useful for ourselves and for other people, it's impossible to meditate. You just can't do it. You know, because the mind is caught up in all the thoughts and all the paraphernalia, if you like, um, while you're trying to concentrate the mind. Too hard, very difficult, takes a very long time. So the Buddha did teach this beginning path of sila, of um, uh, non-harming, if you like. And he talked about it in the beginning stages of the path of purification. And the first one is the purification of morality, brought about by mindfulness brought about by the continuous effort we make to watch the mind and see what's useful, what's not useful, what's wholesome, what's not wholesome, uh, what's going to bring harm to ourselves and what's going to bring harm to other people. So it's not just uh, something that one is forced to do. It's not something that... uh, uh, that we have to do. It's something that when we start to see the effects of a trained mind, we start to see the benefits of this trained mind and we want to do it. And as you progress in the practice, it becomes increasingly difficult to do something with our body, with our mind, with our speech, which is unwholesome increasingly difficult. Uh, Our actions change. Uh, Our speech changes. Our thoughts change. And that's what I found in the beginning of practice. And not that I was really a terribly naughty boy, but, you know, I did have my moments. There's no doubt about it. But I noticed in the meditation practice as it started zooming along a little bit, that there was like a red light would come up in the mind. And when there was an unwholesome thought came into the mind, you would notice it. And before it could go into the realm of speech, and before it can then zoom into action. These three factors are really important to keep uh, ourselves in the middle, to be able to see the unwholesome thoughts before they generate 
uh, unwholesome speech and before they generate uh, unwholesome actions. We get caught up because we can't see the mind. The mind's not clear. It's too fast for us, for many people. And we all know the consequence of this. I mean, I happen to be... Uh, and I still must admit to some propensity for uh, uh, lightning quick anger. But in my younger days it was very uh, uh, strong. Someone would say something, I didn't like it, bang, I'd be right there with it. Someone would do something that was against what I thought, I'd be right there. It wouldn't last for long, but it was enough to cause conflict. Now when it happens, I'm very, really aware of the consequences of what I've done, you know, and what I've said, and what physical action has come about. And you'll see in the world that most of the problems of the world come because people are not able to see their minds quickly enough, and they react instantaneously, out of control. So the undertaking of the meditation practice and the undertaking of the sense of uh, non-harming is in our thoughts and our speech and our actions is really something that is completely useful for us and something to be utilised. Now, it's said in the uh, Buddha's teachings that there's um, four types of morality. Now there's an interesting part coming up here. In the first stage of purification, where's my little thing here? Does this have any resonance for you? Are you understand? Yeah? Good. I've lost my five precepts, so <laughs> it's here somewhere. <laughs> I do know them, but sometimes, you know, I'm a senior citizen now. <laughs> I have an excuse. <laughs> they were here, I'm sure they were here. <laughs> Anyone got a copy? <laughs> thanks. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> <That's a different> <laughs> have to get you another copy. Okay, so the four types of morality. We'll get a little, uh, you know, sort of Buddhistic here. Uh, Buddhists love lists. You know, there's the seven of this, the 37 of that, the 59 of that, the 125 and a half of that. You know, it's not quite right, but you know what I mean, get the, the gist. They talk about the first uh, training. Uh, in uh, Pali it's called Padimoka. Padimoka. And it says here, to refrain from unwholesome actions of the mind and the body and speech, just as I was talking about just a minute ago. So this is something we can undertake as a practice, you know, to begin to become aware as quickly as possible, to catch as quickly as possible the unwholesome or destructive thoughts that come into the mind, which cause us to pounce you know, with our speech and actions. Right? So, Paddy Mocha. The second one it says here is um, to exercise uh, sense restraint. Now, this is something to exercise uh, sense restraint so the mind is not tormented from the results from the results of our body, mind and speech, of our actions in other words. So we're not tormented. As I mentioned earlier, it's very difficult to practice meditation, to concentrate the mind, if the mind is tormented. You know, often in meditation practice, one of the uh, things that comes up, one of the experiences that comes up, uh, is memory of something that one has done or said Many, many years ago. Something, have you had this experience, anyone? 
you know, you've not thought about this for, depending on how old you are, you know, a very long time. But suddenly it'll come cropping up. And this memory will come into the mind about some unwholesome action that you performed, you know, with our thoughts or our speech or our actions. And it'll come in as like a, a fire in the mind. Have you had this experience? Yeah? Some of you may. I've had this experience a few times now. And it's quite tormenting. And when they, talk, when they use this terminology, tormenting, being, although it's a very old-fashioned way of putting things, it is. It's exactly that. And it torments the mind. So what we, look, what we need to do is we need to be mindful as much as possible of these um, memories that come into the mind and watch them as they come and go so the, they, the fire can be put out, if you like, and we can uh, continue with our practice. So restraint is also not an, a word that's used much in the West anymore, you know, is it? You know, since the 60s at least. <laughs> which was a very unrestrained period of time. <laughs> it's not something that people like, a word that people like to use, because they like to be individuals. You know? So they don't care what they say, they don't care what they do. But is that a way to live? I mean, look at all the problems in the world now, often caused by uh, incorrect speech incorrect actions, if you like, or non, not skillful in how we go about our lives. A lot of problems come about through this. So, to my, my way of thinking, having been brought up as a 60s person and a surfer at the same time, I think restraint is really important. We have to try to watch the mind. We have to have a red light in the mind that can remind us, oh no, this is not useful, this is not productive, it's going to cause harm. And then when you're able to uh, see this more clearly, uh, then the torments of the mind won't come about. Um, the third one they give is if we are to live in the world, and this is related to the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, we need to practice, if we have work in the world, if we have functions in the world, we have to ensure that what we do in the world is of a non-harming nature. A non-harming nature. So your jobs, your relationships, everything. It needs to be something that is not going to cause harm to other people. How can there be peace in the world if the gross national product of a country depends on arms? It's impossible. So why? Why are all the wars fought? Because of arms dealers often. You know, wrong livelihood. And I'm not saying that we're going to be doing this, but it's well and good to understand why this is happening. It's happening because of wrong livelihood and people's greed for profit. Interesting, isn't it? And I'm sure it was the same in the time of the Buddha, which is why the Buddha in the teachings said right livelihood is a very important aspect. It should be something that is helpful for people, helpful for yourself, at least non-harming in whatever you do. So keep that in mind. Um, I have a very close Burmese friend who's uh, also a very experienced yogi, uh, a very nice person, has quite a large family and he lives in Australia. He's a professor, of, a retired professor of statistics, very hard to say, statistics. And so he retired for that. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, oh... I need money. He said, oh, you need money. What for? He said, well, firstly, I want to support my growing young family and I want to be able to give to the monastery. 
I want to be able to support the monks and the nuns. I said, oh, no. And he said, I don't have a big enough retirement package. <coughs> he was 68 at the time. I said, well, don't you think it's a little late? <laughs> he said, no. He opened up a convenience store. <laughs> I could not imagine how far you could go from being a professor of statistics you know, to opening up a convenience store. And it was really run down. And he brought the family in. And they're all very bright. And he modernised this store. And it took them about two years. And suddenly he started making a profit. And his family was all employed. And he said, are you happy? He said, yes, I'm happy. Very happy. He said, and now I've been able to support my family. I'm now, I'm now able to offer um, you know, support to the monks and nuns and orphanages, etc., etc. And he's extremely happy. Now he's moved on to one of the big things in Asia is medicines. And the medicines that they often get in Burma are all out of date. So people are making, are having these um, medicines but they're no good for them. They're killing them because they're well overdue in their use-by date. So the monks and he decided that a good way to offer dana, if you like, or to practice generosity, was to set up a little company which provided from Australia proper medicines. And he was able to give these medicines to a lot of the smaller um, hospitals throughout Burma and uh, provide uh, decent health care. So it was quite remarkable, wasn't it? You know, at 68, he wasn't giving up. And I saw him just last week. We had dinner together. He came back from Burma. He spends, he's gone back to Burma for three months at a time. And he was delighted. He was absolutely exhausted, but he was delighted in his mind because he was doing something useful and something that was beneficial. And that was the thing. So he's, he was happy. And I thought, oh, it's good. Yeah. And really a nice thing to do. And practicing the Buddha's teachings of generosity. <clears throat> so right livelihood, you know, trying to do something that is important uh, and in not harming other people, but also providing for your family and for others. You know, I went through. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna go over. I'm sorry. Is this okay? I went through a period. I have a business. I'm also 68, like him. I confess to you. <laughs> I know I look young, but. You know. <laughs> It's the surfing and the meditation. Um, but I've had a business for 40 odd years. And the business in Australia is a wholesale business and it was started through uh, the uh, uh, help of a quite a well-known well, meditation teacher here in America, Joseph Goldstein. He introduced me to certain people after uh, being a wastrel in India becoming a monk and all this sort of thing. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, I have no idea. He said, start a business. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> no problem. I've never done anything like that ever. You know. And he introduced me to some people. I started a business. He said, by starting this business, you'll be able to support the Dharma. And it, as it happened, it was amazing. The help and support I got from starting this business you know, I came back to, uh, to Australia from America where this was all set up. The people over there set me up with $5,000 worth of stock. I had nothing, absolutely. I just came back from India. You know, all I had was some pyjama pants and no eyebrows. <laughs> another friend put me in a house. Another friend had a health food business. And he came along with a list of 30 shops and said, do your thing, go out there with your samples. And I said, what samples? He said, make up a sample kit. <laughs> <laughs> and off I went. He was my first customer. 
and 40 years later it's still there. And in that time we were able to introduce Vipassana in the Mahasi tradition to Australia, build a meditation centre, invite all these wonderful sidors and Western teachers over to Australia and Vipassana started in that way. Now, interestingly enough, in what year was, I forget which year, not so long ago, five years ago, the global fi- uh, financial crisis happened. You know that? 2008. 2008, that's what I was going to say. All our businesses got hit hard, really hard. And it was a very difficult time. And what I noticed was that my mind started to tighten. That's what I noticed. Not the loss of income, which was substantial. You know, I had places in Europe, and places in America, and wholesalers here and wholesalers there. Suddenly it all dried up. <clears throat> and it was quite difficult. But I wasn't worried about the money as such. But I was worried about the tightness that came into my mind. You know, I was reluctant to give. I could feel this reluctance to give. You know, and I used to support, as my friend, Burmese friend did, a lot of the monasteries as well as orphanages, etc. But then I could feel the tightening coming into the mind. Not good. Not good. And I knew it wasn't good. But there was a time I just couldn't stop it. You know, I'd say no, no, no. And then one day I really realised what I was doing and I started to say yes, yes, yes again. And suddenly I opened up again. So even though uh, we may feel a selfishness arise in the mind, it has no benefit. The benefits come from a mind which is not caught up in its own self. You know, to be able to help and support people is really important. And it's like a magnet. Like attracts like. Light. And suddenly things will open up again. So I'd like to just run that by you, see how that feels. It certainly taught me a lesson. I have to admit still to being slightly you know, but not as much as I was in 2008 and those next couple of years. It's really an interesting period of time. Yeah. So we learn how to let go of our security blankets. And we can do this by offering dana, by practicing sila. <coughs> so these are given as the... Um, the four types of morality. And in Buddhist countries and also in the Western countries now when we undertake a retreat or just living in our life, uh, we undertake uh, what's known as the five precepts. And they're five rules of training uh, that I'm sure you've all heard before or most of you will have heard before. And they're all sensible. But interestingly enough, it was pointed out to me recently, we think of these five precepts as being Buddhist, but in fact they're not. Oh, I I forgot to mention the fourth one, which is to do with monks and nuns. And the monks and nuns in Burmese, uh, in uh, Buddhist countries throughout the world, uh, they take a very refined uh, training in morality. They need to follow very many rules uh, in their training practice. And these rules came about. The Buddha never laid down, he said the Buddha never laid down any rules. He only put these rules in place when people come and said, this is what happened to me one day. Would it be helpful if we did this? And he would ask the rest of the community and they would say, yes, we agree to accept this rule. And now, as far as the monks uh, go, uh, there's 227 rules of conduct that they undertake when they ordain as a monk or a nun. Uh, not a nun, but a monk. Uh, nuns. nuns actually have more rules. 
Um, but please don't ask me what they are. I don't know. But for us, these five precepts are actually universal. They're not really Buddhist. All countries, all religions, etc., etc., practice in some way uh, these uh, precepts. Uh, Which is interesting, isn't it? Because I always thought about them as being strictly Buddhist. But it was pointed out to me by a very learned friend, Ula Mint, that these uh, precepts are actually universal trainings that we can undertake. Um, Now, for example, these five precepts, I'll just run through them. Uh, We take the uh, precept not to harm other, not to kill, not to harm other living beings. You know, that's the first of the precept. Non-killing. You know, we try the best we can as a training not to kill other things. Now this is a sensible rule, isn't it? I mean, we don't want to be killed. Why can't we give the gift of dana even to a mosquito? The mosquito also doesn't want to be killed. It wants to live happily, you know, biting people. It's very happy when it's biting people, right? So we have to practice wise discrimination here in regard to a mosquito, even. Even though a mosquito can cause a lot of problems for people. Now, the Buddha had an answer for that. In fact, he said that as long as your intention is with wise discrimination and you can see that it's going to be harming uh, the population, uh, then you know you can wipe them out, I suppose. But it's interesting that when you get into meditation practice, one of the things I noticed in regard to the first precept was the restraint that started to come into the mind. See, mindfulness is such a wonderful attribute. You know, we think of it now as a training but after the training has gone long a little way it starts to naturally affect us I noticed one time I was meditating in uh, Buddha Gaya and the mosquitoes in India have you been to India or Asian countries five o'clock in the afternoon it's like torment you know you need all the odin moss and all the mosquito nets and everything they still get in right (coughs) But they're really uh, powerful little beings. And then I was sitting there and I could feel this, hear this little buzz going on. And I knew what was about to happen. It was going to pounce, right? And I could, my hand went up and started to come down. And there was a moment, it just stopped there. There's nothing, I couldn't move my hand. I couldn't move it to go to make that smacking or killing of the mosquito. It just didn't happen. I'm trying to move my hand, and I couldn't do it. It was interesting, wasn't it? And then fortunately the mosquito went out of the mosquito net, so I went back to normal position. It happened one or two times more, but before I... Well, even now, it takes a great deal before I'll smack the mosquito. But at that time, it was like a restraint was happening on the hand. It was really quite interesting how that, how that arose. I don't know if you can relate to that or not. But that was the power of mindfulness at that point, when it was strong. You know, that's what it does. It stops the mind from creating bad karma. It restrains the mind. It's very interesting. Yeah. So non-killing. No one wants to be killed. So Ulamit used the phrase, well why don't we give them the gift of dana, you know, generosity, and not kill them. And I thought, okay, that sounds good. I can do that. Right. Stealing is the second one. You know, we all, we don't want our possessions taken, do we? You know, Isn't it really a horrible feeling when you come back and you 
to your car, you know, I hang around all these, you know, surfy places. <laughs> well, not all the time. But I've come back to my car a few times and the windows are smashed in, they've taken everything out of the car. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. You know, but you also know what it's like if you have the propensity even to take a little thing that's not given. You know, there's a torment arises in the mind uh, from time to time from that. So no one wants to be having their possession stolen. Something like that is non-stealing. So we have to watch it in that aspect as well. Sexual misconduct. Um, you know, no one wants to, you know, wants their uh, wives or daughters or whoever to be raped. You know, that's awful. What an awful thing. You know, we don't want to cause harm by our actions, you know, by getting caught up in our <coughs> lustful thoughts. You know, one thing I learned the, uh, uh, a little while, actually, I've, uh, one of the meditation teachers a long time ago, he said this to me. He said, whenever a lustful thought comes into the mind, think of the person, whether it's a male or a female, as your brother and sister. It's really interesting how the change of attitude happens. It's just by changing that thought, the idea of uh, misconduct goes out of the mind. So you might like to try that and see if that works for you. It was uh, worked for me. It's really interesting, really good. Um, telling lies and cheating, you know, there's many aspects of this. This comes into the uh, the way of the five the five precepts. Very hard not to tell a lie, isn't it? Even a little white lie, really difficult. You know, I think one would have to be a Buddha to really achieve that purification. But we can try our best to restrain our mind from even the little white lies. You know, but sometimes the little white lies are important not to harm people. But for a Buddha or someone of an enlightened state of mind, even a white lie will not form in the mind, whereas they do within us from time to time. But we need to be mindful of them. We need to be mindful how the mind is reacting. This is what meditation is about. It's about seeing and understanding how the mind works and how it creates conditions for unhappiness and the conditions for unhappiness. You know, what are these conditions? Well, telling lies is a condition for unhappiness. You have to ask yourself, do you want to be a cause of unhappiness? And sometimes I ask myself that question. And when you see that the unhappiness is brought about by breaking any of these precepts, uh, then you know, yes, this is a cause of unhappiness you know, for the persons or the population or for yourself. So that's why they're important. So here, it's all coming back to mindfulness. The last precept is uh, the not taking of intoxicants which create uh, heedlessness in the mind. Now the definition I mentioned, one of the definitions of mindfulness is heedlessness, isn't it? And uh, how much problem is caused in the world today, you know, by um, drugs, I mean, Australia, I'm sure it isn't the same in Hawaii, it's become a phenomenon. Although, and, you know, it's really, really uh, difficult for people. Uh, it's becoming such a big issue. And binge drinking is also becoming such a big uh, issue in Australia amongst the uh, young people. Although, I must admit to a little of that in my young days also, so I can't say too much about it. But as a meditator, what we try to do uh, is practice heedfulness. And so if we can restrain the mind uh, from intoxicants, we're going to have a better life. 
because when one becomes a little tiddly, we do all things that are not quite so wholesome. Maybe not in the beginning, but over a period of time. There's the propensity uh, for uh, unwholesome actions of thought, speech and mind to happen. So we have to be careful of that as well. And these precepts, they're known as universal precepts. So most of them, or all of them often, are kept by people throughout the world, not just Buddhist people. But they're very practical. I think what the Buddhists have, or I shouldn't say the Buddhists, but meditators have, that are practicing mindfulness, is uh, that they have the um, skill to be able to see the mind more clearly as the title of the retreat is. You see the mind more clearly and what it's doing. And so you can restrain the mind when necessary and when it's moving into these areas. So you're not harming yourself and not harming other people. So it all comes back to this central quality that we're trying to um, facilitate here in this retreat of becoming more mindful and developing more understanding about ourselves and about the world, if you like. Now, on a retreat, what we like to do each morning is we like to take these precepts and chant them together. Uh, many of you, of the older students, will have done this many, many times. And it sets up a nice feeling and a nice vibration, if you like, um, within the centre. Now, all these precepts are very easy to keep here. There's no entanglements, you know, I don't know about killing any mosquitoes around. Okay, so please restrain from that, refrain from that. Sexual misconduct, where well, we're all on you know, celibacy, so no problems about that. Uh, stealing, nothing much to steal, you know, here, so we're not going to be too concerned about that. But even that, in, in sense of a meditator, uh, we can watch the mind, even if it wants to pick up uh, an extra biscuit or, or something like that, you know, that someone hasn't offered. You know, you can <coughs> those little things. Are you okay with taking the precepts? Yeah. So we might just do that and finish up. We usually start the precepts with the homage to the Buddha. And then we uh, take the precepts, Uh, we uh, take a refuge in the Buddha. Now here it doesn't mean that one has to become a Buddhist by any means. If you're not inclined that way, that's perfectly okay. But for this period of time, uh, we're taking uh, refuges in the qualities of the Buddha. We're taking refuges in the quality of the um, um, Dharma or the laws or the teaching of the Buddha. And we're taking refuge in the Sangha, literally meaning uh, that group of men and women who are highly evolved and highly attained in their practice. But from our sense, we can take it with that thought in mind or just all of us here as a Sangha, a Dharma family, a community, coming together to practice meditation. Something like this. So I think they're really nice to take as well. Give a good feeling. Usually we chant the... um, the homages three times and the refuges three times and the precepts three times. No, not not uh, three times, but we just uh, chant the refuges. And usually we do it in English as well. Uh, not in English. I'm getting tired. In Pali. So you can read the English in your own spare time. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, A number of you know how to do this. Uh, For those of you that don't, please follow as best you can. 
and I guarantee in the next few days you'll be singing like a church choir. <laughs> Some people are reluctant in the beginning, but after a few days they're the loudest in the room. <laughs> Something like that. So we start off with the homages and I'll um, lead you with this. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato asamma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato asamma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa. And then we take the precepts. Buddhang. Oh, the, uh, sorry, the um, taking of the refuge. Sorry. I'm fading. <laughs> That's why you got to do this in the morning. <laughs> so we are taking the refuge if you like to follow with me. Buddhang saranang gachami, tanghang saranang gachami, sanghang saranang gachami, dutiyampi buddhang saranang gachami, dutiyampi tamhang saranang gachami, Tutiampi sanghang saranangachami, Tatiampi buddhang saranangachami, Tatiampi tamhang saranangachami, Tatiampi sanghang saranangachami. And then we do take the precepts, the five precepts. <laughs> And the first one is Panati Bata Werapmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Adinadana Werapmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Werapmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Musawada Werapmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadatana Werapmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Idang Me Silam Magapalanyanasa Pacheo Hotu and the sadhu means well said, well said or well done, well done. So these are the five precepts. I'm sure within a few days the newer folks here will get used to it and uh, we'll chant that in the morning before the morning sitting. It sets a good tone for the retreat, don't you think? You know, here we are, we're in a situation where we have a chance or an opportunity rare in the world. Um, even, though, even though at this point in time you may feel like escaping from here. But it is a rare opportunity to silence the mind and to begin to understand the mind and to begin to, st un to understand the causes of suffering and the causes of happiness in the mind. Very important. We don't often get this opportunity. So please make the most of it. Uh, please be encouraged. And uh, we need a few more days because I'm slowly going through this list. I'm supposed to do three tonight, but we only got to one. <laughs> we may have uh, a minute or two if you have a, a, few, a little while, if you have any questions about the talk or something that's been coming into your mind. We can do that. At least I've got that far. <laughs> Anything happening for you that you'd like to ask about?
doing the, the, the noting, let's say it's, uh, let's say you do it on an airline flying by or checking uh, out that. Yep. Do I just say hearing or should I identify more specifically what the noise is? No, we just say hearing. We don't need to identify that it's a chicken or that it's uh, an aeroplane going by. Because what will happen if we do do that, we'll start to ruminate and the mind will go off. Oh, a plane going by. I wonder what type of plane. Is that Qantas? Or is it, you know, is it Garuda? Oh, what's the American? Or is it American Airlines? Co-sharing with Qantas? You know, you start to go off onto this train of thought which is unuseful. So what we're noticing really, see, remember that Satipatthana uh, has a component, uh, is connected with vipassana, Satipatthana vipassana. Satipatthana means, sati, very briefly, I'll talk about this more tomorrow, uh, sati means to pay attention, and patana means closely, or firmly establishing one's attention on the object of meditation to understand and the vipassana part means v and pasana and it means to understand the various characteristics that characterize the human existence right that pertain to the human's existence what this existence is about and I guess we should get into that because it's really what it's all about. Uh, these three characteristics that we closely try to establish our mindfulness on, or fix our attention on, if you like, are that um, everything changes, everything's impermanent. And because of that, there's subject to suffering if we cling to it with the wrong view of, imp- of permanence. Right? Also, the third characteristic is, which is a little difficult for us to understand, it's a quite highly developed concept, which is actually not a concept, but as we speak about it, that there's actually no one home. The I, me, mind, identification, judgment about ourselves and what we experience is actually an invalid view, not quite correct. And we begin to see this more clearly as we go into meditation practice. But we don't bring that up straight away because it can be a little overwhelming for people. But we can understand impermanence, can't we? I mean, you've been sitting here since 6.15 this morning. A lot of changes have happened, haven't there, throughout the day. We start to notice the changes. So when I talk about mere, mere observation of the flux of the day through the application of the four foundations of mindfulness, through applying ourselves to look at these particular areas, that's the gist of the practice. So when we notice a chicken, the sound of a chicken, in actual fact what we're wanting to see is not chicken. Chicken is just a concept. We want to see the impermanent nature uh, nature of that experience. A little deep. But that's what we're looking at, is the impermanent nature of this experience. And I'll talk more about that. So in other words, very briefly, non-identification. Just note hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. That's all we need to do. It's like a passive, bare attention to the experience is what we're after. Not wanting to get rid of, not wanting to get, but just watching. If it's agreeable, not getting caught in that. If it's disagreeable, not getting caught in that. Now, as you notice throughout the day, it's very hard to do, isn't it? You know, we hate with a vengeance sometimes difficult physical sensations don't we I, at times I just hated it <laughs> to be really honest with you <laughs> <Go away. laughs> until I learned to sit more easily with things mm. 
So instead of developing wisdom about a situation, I was cultivating anger. <laughs> so getting myself in more trouble. <laughs> so that's what it's about. So this mere observation or the bare attention uh, to what our experience is. So just hearing. Hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking. Day, all the time, try to be like this. Yep. But what is important is the firm establishment of the, of the uh, attention on the object. It's like the attention needs to cover it somewhat and be able to stay there for a period of time to be able to see it clearly. And they use, uh, I'll talk more about this tomorrow because it's quite interesting how it works. Um, but for now, I'll actually draw you a diagram. I can't on the wall here, but I'd like to of how the whole thing unfolds tomorrow. Yeah. Okay? Just hearing. Okay. Anything else cropping up? Richard? Yeah, Craig, it's a historical question. Mm. Regarding all of this in Buddhism, um, what's your best sense? Uh, how uh, do they come more from the Buddha? Sorry, sorry, Richard. What was that? What was the last bit? No, no, I'm good. Okay. Um, like in Christianity, uh, yep. there's the Ten Commandments. Yeah, right. Jesus only had two. And so I just wonder how they listen to Buddhism. What's your sense of how they evolved historically? The precepts. All, 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 all the rules. Oh, right. Well, it's, look, it's really interesting that it said that, um, I mean, as far as the precepts goes, um, I explained how that happened. It happened because of certain circumstances that uh, arose. And, you know, for example, it said that, if I can remember this, um, in the early days of the Buddha, uh, the monks uh, didn't stay in the monastery for three months of, of the year, which they do now. Uh, during the rainy season. But in those days they used to travel around the country uh, on arms round, giving teachings, etc., etc. And then one night uh, they went into a farmyard and uh, it was like dusk. And of course, being a monk you have no hair and you're in, in those days you're in uh, raggedy old uh, robes, something like that, not you know, something that they picked out up out of the carnal heap or something. And they went into uh, a particular farmyard to ask uh, to be offered uh, dana by the husband. But the wife was there and she saw this ghastly or ghostly apparition, which were the monks. And she screamed and screamed and screamed. And so uh, when the monks were... Uh, uh, very upset by this that they had caused a problem for this lady. They went back to the Buddha and they said, do you think for a certain period of the year uh, we could be uh, studying and practicing within the confines of the monastery? And the Buddha said, well, I'll discuss it with everybody else and if everyone agrees, we'll make this rule. So they all agreed and that's how the rainy season or vasa uh, period of time came in Buddhism. Now then, as far as uh, a lot of the teachings of the Buddha, they come, of course, from the Pali Canon. But the pa it came initially from Ananda, who was the um, chief attendant of the Buddha, and he had a photographic memory. And when the Buddha would talk and give Dharma discourses, um, Ananda could remember everything, just everything. He had one of those photographic memories. And so after the Buddha died, there was a council formed, Ananda, there's a whole story, I won't go into all the details, but Ananda was invited to present uh, his, um, what he had stored up in his mind. And so that was one of the ways that they collected the Buddha's teachings. Um, and there's also 
another which is really very interesting as well is that due to the skill in meditation of the monks that were practicing, the highly developed monks, they could analyze the mind. And so Buddhist psychology, of course, comes from the analytical processes which come out of seeing clearly in the mind, understanding causes and conditions, understanding what's useful, not useful, understanding how the mind works, in other words. And so they were able to write it down. And it became, and I'm sure it was, you know, it's been um, played with quite a bit, but essentially uh, the essence of the Buddha's teachings from 2,600 years ago is said to be still pretty good, pretty genuine. Yep, pretty genuine. So that's how it came about. Something like that. Now Vipassana, of course, uh, is another story. And uh, tomorrow we can go into that. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a long day tomorrow. (laughs) I don't know if I'll be able to manage (laughs) that. I might forget which are the refugees and which are the... (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, was that okay for you? I hope it wasn't too boring. (laughs) But uh, let's try our best to maintain the continuity of the mindfulness. Watch the mind. Watch when you're feeling up, watch when you're feeling down. Try to stay in the middle as much as possible with what you're doing. Be aware of the physicality of the body. Be aware of the sensations that you experience. Be aware of the thoughts and emotions that come in. Be aware of the chickens that you hear and the Qantas aeroplanes that fly by. That kind of thing on a continual basis. But also don't be worried if you miss many things. It's perfectly okay. Always keep with the beginner's mind, come back, start again. It's all okay. Just let go. So please try. Thank you. Twenty minutes.